And Lord, as we now prepare our own hearts to come to your word, we thank you for your word and we remember that it is sufficient, that it is inerrant, that it is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Oh God, apart from your Spirit giving us illumination, understanding, we know that we could not understand the texts that we come to. We know that we certainly couldn't put anything into application in our lives apart from your Spirit working in us, but we could not even understand. We would just be lost in darkness. And so we pray, Lord, that by your Spirit we may have our minds illumined as we read your Word, that we may be doers of your Word, and that you would prevent us from being merely hearers. We know, O Lord, that your Word accomplishes your work. And so we pray, Lord, that you would work in us, conform us to the image of Christ, show us our need for your grace and your abundant supply, your abundant provision of grace for those who love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 4. I was going to try to preach the whole chapter today. Forget it. It ain't going to happen. There's just too much, uh, too much good stuff in this chapter. Uh, it's a chapter that's worthy of being broken into two sermons. So I think, uh, I think I'll be able to do it in two sermons, but I definitely was not going to be able to do it in just one. Uh, but we're going to be looking at chapter 4 of 1 Samuel, verses 1 to 11 today, as we continue in our study of 1 Samuel. Uh, as, you're, as you're turning there, let me remind you that uh, one of the points that I tried to drive home in our previous lesson last week was that where people don't hear God, they will not fear God, and where people do not fear God, the consequence is that moral chaos prevails. It, it ensues, necessarily. It ensues because the natural, unregenerate man is so inclined to just do what is right in his own eyes. Of course, that's the theme of the book of Judges. And of course, that's what we see going on in our culture today as fewer and fewer and fewer people are professing Christ. But the natural man is inclined to do what's right in his own eyes. He's inclined to do what comes naturally to him and to do what gives him the greatest amount of pleasure, which, by the way, should not be confused with satisfaction. No, the, the unregenerate, the natural man doesn't know or obey God. And so they will not find pleasure. They, they'll, they'll find maybe temporary or fleeting pleasure, but they won't find satisfaction because any glimpse of pleasure that they even start to find will be gone before they fully grasp it. Nothing else is truly satisfying Thus, the unregenerate man cannot find satisfaction in this world. Which is why people with tons of money who thought they'd be satisfied when they get tons of money only realize that they aren't, no matter how much they have. But make no mistake about it, even when moral chaos ensues, 
Even when moral chaos enslaves a culture, enslaves a man to the lusts and desires of his heart, he will still nevertheless worship something. Something will captivate his heart. Something will be his highest priority in life. Something will sit on the throne of his heart. And that thing, whatever that something may be, will be the object of his worship. An obvious example is money again. The reason Jesus taught that you cannot serve God in money instead of teaching something like, I don't know, you, you, can't, you, can't, uh, you can't serve God and squirrels uh, is because squirrels aren't tempting, but money is. Money so easily becomes the object of our worship. I'm sure there have been people that worship squirrels, but I guarantee you that the worship of money is far more prevalent. But it can be anything. The object of our worship, our highest priority in life, the thing sitting on the throne of our hearts can be absolutely anything. It can be money, but it can also be things like family. It can be sports. It can be even vain religiosity. And maybe that last one caught your attention and seemed a little bit odd or out of place to you. But if you look around the world, in areas where Christianity especially isn't the predominant religion, uh, it's not that you won't find religion in those places. No, you find religion everywhere you go around the world. Although I should clarify and add that the religion that you'll find in most of the world is man-made, is false, false religion. And so one of the primary characteristics you'll find in world religions is an attempt to harness Uh, or or captivate the power of their deity, or to manipulate their deity for some sort of personal benefit. Uh, They want rain, and so they make a sacrifice for the sake of rain. Things like that. Do Christians do that? The answer might surprise you. The answer is that they don't necessarily do that. But yes, Christians absolutely can have something else that takes and captivates their heart. There's always a battle between the spirit and the flesh in which something is trying to captivate our hearts. So yes, Christians absolutely can, for a time, slip into this type of idolatry. And this is seen uh, for one example, one historic example, is by comparing the first and second great awakenings. Uh, Of course, those are famous revivals that took place in America. The first Great Awakening took place in the middle of the 18th century, so in the 1700s. It was something that wasn't planned or prepared for, at least not by man. Uh, it was something that simply happened when, uh, when, when Christian pastors returned to the Scriptures and started preaching uh, things like you know, how utterly sinful man is and how unable he is to save himself. Uh, They preach difficult doctrines that the Bible teaches, like predestination. As they and and others preached these these difficult truths, uh, people were broken. And so there was a huge wave of of repentance, of of revival, led to an incredible revival. And it it was true revival. The second Great Awakening, in contrast... 
Uh, that was in the early 1800s. It was driven not by an increased awareness of our sin, not by an increased dependence on God, but in an increase in techniques. If you wonder where pragmatism comes from in the church, pragmatism being the philosophy that we should just do whatever works, whatever gets us most quickly to our desired goal is what we should do. If you want to know where that came from in the church, here's where it started. An increase in techniques in the Second Great Awakening. It was Charles Finney the staunch legalistic moralist and the great deceiver who denied the doctrines of original sin and who denied substitutionary atonement, who would commonly boast that revival was not an act of God. That indeed a person coming to Christ was not a miracle. It wasn't an act of God, but rather it was an appropriate use of means. In other words, they would have altar calls, or they would have the famous anxious seat, if you've ever heard of that, in order to pressure people into making confessions or professions of Christ. And so Charles Finney learned how to manipulate someone into professing Christ. He bragged to people that, give me your kids for 15 minutes and I guarantee they'll become a Christian by the time I'm done with them. And his methodology spread like wildfire, and that was the Second Great Awakening. Do you see the vast differences between the first great awakening and the second great awakening? The first relied on God. The second relied on techniques, manipulation. And so with that said, I I believe it's a mistake to equate uh, these two great awakenings as if they were the same thing. They clearly were not. The first was Christianity. The second was really just good sociology and psychology applied to religion. But the truth is that man has always had this inclination to try to manipulate God, to try to use God like a genie as a means of accomplishing some type of goal or desire. And it's what we're going to see in the text that we come to today as we continue our study of 1 Samuel. You'll recall that the tabernacle in Shiloh uh, had been badly, badly compromised. A man named Eli was functioning as the high priest in Shiloh, and he had allowed his sons to serve in the priesthood at the tabernacle. And yet, his sons neither knew nor feared God, and thus they committed all these atrocious disgusting, vile acts all in the tabernacle, all for the sake of personal gain and pleasure. Uh, They were using God, His tabernacle, as a means to their desired ends. But God vowed to do something about it. If you remember back at the end of chapter 2, God sent a man of God to give Eli a message. That message being that God was going to punish Eli and his household, uh, including his sons, And he vowed that the lives of Eli's sons would both be taken on the same day. And then we get to chapter 3. We saw that God revealed himself to Samuel, raising Samuel up to be a prophet to the Israelites. We saw that the chapter at least appeared uh, to end on a high note. 
Uh, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 20, it told us all Israel from Dan even to Beersheba knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. So there's an awareness that God is now speaking through his prophet Samuel. And if we take this at face value, it would be really easy for us to think that, well, things have really started to turn around for Israel. Now they're on the fast track to getting right with God. Uh, that after lacking spiritual leadership, for what must have been several decades, if you can imagine that. Israel was now prepared to, to turn from her, her wicked ways and to serve Yahweh faithfully. Now that will happen eventually. But first, Israel's pride is going to need to be broken. And that's going to involve going through what you might call a really dark valley. So Israel was going to have to learn that God will not be manipulated into action by his people. And it will cost them tens of thousands of lives being lost on the battlefield in order for them to learn the utter futility, the utter failure of godless, carnal religiosity. It's a lesson that God's people throughout the ages would do well and be wise to learn as well. So the point of our passage that we come to today is this. It's that God doesn't exist to fulfill our carnal, godless aspirations. Rather, our aspirations must be shaped and molded by God's will as revealed by His Word alone. Let me say it again. God doesn't exist to fulfill our carnal, godless aspirations or desires. Rather, our aspirations and our desires must be shaped and molded by God's will, which is revealed only in His Word. So, our text begins in the middle of verse 1 of chapter 4. The first sentence of, uh, of verse 1 should have actually been the end of verse 3. Now we know that the, the chapter breaks, where they put the chapters and where they put the verses, that much was not inspired by God, that was done by man. Uh, but it's very obvious that the first sentence really doesn't belong in this chapter at all because this chapter isn't even about Samuel. In fact, we don't even see Samuel anywhere else in this chapter. We won't see him for several chapters. So we start with the second sentence in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, we'll read that through verse 4. It says, Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. So the people went to Shiloh, and from there they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who sits above the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, as we noted in our previous lesson, the Ark of the Covenant would become uh, very important in uh, this chapter and actually in the next few chapters that follow. The Ark of the Covenant comes into play because Israel is at war with a people that have been longtime enemy, enemies of, the, uh, of the, the Israelite people, that is the Philistines. 
But we should know, uh, if we've read Judges, that the Philistines are not a new enemy. They are an old enemy. We saw them giving Israel all kinds of problems in the book of Judges. Uh, they first showed up while Deborah was, uh, was raised up to serve Israel as one of the judges. Uh, by the time of Samson, who was the final judge in the book of Judges, they had really become uh, a thorn in the side. They'd really become a, a big problem for Israel uh, Samson was the final judge recorded in the book, and we're told of how he waged war with the Philistines, and his story ended with him being taken captive by the Philistines, but by him killing himself and an enormous number of Philistines by uh, pulling the pillars of the house down, causing the house that he was held captive in to fall down on him and everyone else in the house, resulting in the house crashing down on all the Lord's that is, all the rulers of the Philistine people, in addition to many others who were present in the house. Judges chapter 16, verse 30 summarizes it this way. It says, So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he killed in his life. So Samson was the final judge, and he looked like he took care of the Philistines, but he didn't. So keep in mind that that was actually fairly recent history in Samuel's time. Here in chapter 4, this wasn't that long ago. It was probably a generation ago. They, they know all about what happened. They know who the Philistines are. Unfortunately, however, Samson hadn't eliminated the Philistines as enemies. And if anything, the Philistines are back, and they are badder and madder than they were back in Samson's day. So here we're told that they, they actually are invading. Uh, they invade Israel's territory, camping in a place called Aphek, Aphek was an Ephraimite town uh, that would have been about 20 miles west of Shiloh. Uh, that is way too close for your enemy to be camping, of course. And so Israel counters by going out to camp at a place called Ebenezer. Uh, we're not exactly sure where Ebenezer is exactly, but it was almost certainly somewhere between uh, Aphek and Shiloh. So it's somewhere in the middle, maybe on the other side of a valley from where the Philistines were. But the story of the battle is actually really brief. It's quick, and because it's so quick, it's kind of unsettling. Uh, Israel was swiftly defeated, probably within a day or two. And 4,000 of their men were killed in battle. Now, just to put that in a little bit of perspective for you, uh, the United States Department of Defense website states that 4,418 American soldiers died in the course of the war in Afghanistan between March of 2003 and August 31st of 2010. 4,400 casualties. But over 900 of those casualties were classified as non-hostile. In other words, they were from things like uh, friendly fire. They they were accidental or incidental. But what this tells us is that there were more uh, Israeli casualties, more Israelite casualties at the hands of the Philistines in this very quick battle than the United States suffered at the hands of enemy militants in their long drawn-out war in Afghanistan. So this is a devastating, maybe even depressing defeat for the Israelites, obviously. 4,000 casualties, that's a lot of casualties. And it forced the elders of Israel, keep in mind that these are their quote-unquote religious leaders, it forced them to face some really difficult questions like, how could this happen? How could we lose so badly? 
See, the Philistines weren't just the enemies of Israel. They were also the enemies of God. But that didn't prevent God from actually raising them up to discipline and to scourge Israel as a means of causing Israel to repent and to return back to God. One commentator says this, he says, quote, Israel's relationship with the Philistines was a barometer of their relationship with God. When they experienced defeat, they saw it as the withdrawal of divine favor, end quote. And I might add, somewhat rightfully so, because God would sometimes raise up enemies to discipline his people. So why this withdrawal of divine favor? That's the question that the elders of Israel must answer. They actually ask the right question. Look at verse 3 with me. They ask, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They're honest about the fact that they have lost, and they understand that God was supposed to be with them. So again, this, this is the right question for them to be asking. Could not Yahweh have delivered the Philistines into the hands of the Israelites? Of course He could have. Couldn't He have caused them to prevail? Of course He could have. So it's good that they ask, why has the Lord defeated us today? Not, not why have the Philistines. That's not what they say. They say, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It seems so strange. I mean, didn't God say back in Deuteronomy 31.8, the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Yeah, He said that. And yet, Israel gets decimated in this war. Why? The elders can't understand how this can possibly be. So it seems so strange. But... Is it really? Is it really? The fact is that this defeat at Ebenezer wasn't the first time that the Israelites had lost a battle. And we we need to see that this is actually just a continuation of this pattern that was established in the book of Judges. In the book of Judges, what we see over and over again is this, this cycle, this pattern that gets established where Israel would forget about Yahweh, uh, they, would, they would sin against Him, they would take up idols and worship idols instead of Yahweh, and as a result, Yahweh would hand them over to their sin, raising up enemies who would take the Israelites captive. Eventually, the people would uh, see the error of their ways, uh, they'd repent, and God would raise up a judge who would serve the Lord uh, as His representative by delivering the Israelites from their enemies and oppressors. And then once they were uh, back right with the Lord again and, and safe, before long the cycle would start all over again. The Israelites would forget about God. They'd become idolaters and sin against Yahweh. They'd get taken into captivity and so on and so forth. But what's interesting to note in the book of Judges is that each cycle was progressively worse and worse and worse. And this is just the continuation of that same exact cycle, that same pattern carrying over into Samuel's day. So God has demonstrated that He loves His people enough that He's willing to discipline them as a means of bringing them back to Him in faith and repentance. That's, that's kind of what we see throughout Judges. 
So getting back to the question that the elders of Israel were confronted with, were, were asking, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The answer is actually crystal clear. It's not difficult to figure out. It's not that God has left them. It's not that God has forsaken them. It's not that God has taken back His promises to them. Rather, it's that He handed them over to their enemies yet again. And why would He do that? Because He loves them and because their sin against Him was so great. He's cleansing them of their sin. So the fact is that God doesn't guarantee victory, not by human standards, for every battle that His people face. He doesn't guarantee a W. Sometimes He ordains an L. Sometimes He decrees that we should lose the battle, although it's only a a loss from our finite human perspective. The truth that gives us confidence in all of life, anyone who is... Uh, who's in Christ, the confidence that we have in every situation in life is that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. And that He is causing all things to work, including the battles that we lose by human standards, to work together to grow us in the likeness of Christ. You think growing in the likeness of Christ would be an easy thing? But it's not. It's not. You've got a better chance on your own of swimming to Mars. You can't do it. It's a work that God must do. And He does because He loves His people enough to discipline them when they sin and to teach us through these lessons, through these battles that we lose, that He alone is what's worth living for. So God was sending a message to Israel with this loss on the battlefield. He was calling them to face the consequences of their sin, to repent and to turn from their wicked ways so that they might return to God and find Him to be their all-satisfying, all-sufficient provision and portion, and that they would walk in the light of His ways, not according to what seems right in their own eyes. That was the message that the loss was supposed to convey. But the message was not received loud and clear, not by any stretch of the imagination. Why? Because the Israelites were prideful. They were proud. They had aspirations of revenge. Uh, They were blinded by these carnal, godless uh, goals and aspirations. Uh, What should they have done? What should the elders of Israel do? have done. They should have consulted with God. How could they do that? Well, they could have prayed. But keep in mind, like we saw back at uh, the the first verse, uh, the first sentence in the first verse of this chapter, they knew that God was now speaking to them through the prophet Samuel. So they could have gone to Samuel, who was God's appointed prophet, the man through whom God was speaking in that time, and they should have repented in sackcloth and ashes, which I have no doubt, because Samuel was speaking for God, is exactly what Samuel would have advised them to do. But instead, they decide, let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the ark of the covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. 
Now you'll see that it says that it may come along. And if you have the NASB 95 uh, translation, you'll see that there's probably some kind of footnote there on the word it, uh, because that word it can also be translated as he. He or it, depending on the context. So it can be translated that he may come among us. I would argue, however, that it is the correct translation, because what becomes clear in this passage is that their confident hope is in the Ark of the Covenant, but it's not in God Himself. In other words, the hope, the confident hope that they have is actually all in vain. It's in an object. It's not in God Himself. It's in God's, uh, the symbol of His presence, but it's not actually in God Himself. And so, their confident hope is futile. It's in vain. Now, we know that there's this long history of the Ark of the Covenant being present in battle, and God would give the people victory. Uh, Maybe the most obvious example was when Israel crossed the Jordan River uh, into the promised land of, uh, of Canaan in the book of Joshua. Joshua himself had said to the Israelites uh, in chapter 3, verse 11, Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is crossing over ahead of you into the Jordan. In other words, what he was telling them is that the ark was a sign of God's favor and of sure victory which was granted at Jericho. The problem was that it wasn't the Ark of the Covenant that gave them victory. It was Yahweh. It was God who gave them the victory. But the elders of Israel here in our text, in Samuel's day, are thinking that this was their ace in the hole. Imagine being the only country in the world that has a nuclear bomb. That would be our ace in the hole, right? If we're losing, we're going to pull out the big guns, right? If you remember the movie, The Raiders of the Lost Ark, one of the first movies I remember seeing as a kid, uh, it was Indiana Jones's sidekick who said, quote, an army which carries the ark before it is invincible, end quote. Now, apparently uh, his sidekick had not read the book of 1 Samuel, uh, because as this story plays out, we'll see that nothing could be further from the truth. But Indiana Jones's sidekick uh, was thinking the same way that the elders of Israel are thinking here. It's a trump card. It's an ace in the hole. They're thinking that they can harness and use, manipulate even, the power of God for their own godless, carnal benefit. That's simply a a godless, flesh-driven way of thinking. God doesn't exist for the fulfillment of our personal aspirations, our carnal, godless aspirations. That's a delusion of false religion. We we see that in the health and wealth community. The the false teachers who teach a false gospel of of physical health and material prosperity. Uh, That is unregenerate man's way of thinking. That is man saying, God exists for the sake of blessing me as I see fit and to accommodate all of my carnal desires. That's why God exists. No, it isn't. And no, He won't. God will not be used. God will not be harnessed. God will not be put in a box. He will not be manipulated for our personal carnal gains. He is in debt to no one for anything. 
But what we see here is that this kind of thinking actually isn't new. It's not new to the prosperity crowd. Uh, it's actually as old as dirt, in fact. God doesn't exist for our purposes. We exist for His. Our purpose is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And to that end, God has drawn us to Himself and has given us faith. That is to say that faith isn't something that you conjured up on your own. Uh, Have you forgotten that a man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven? Or that by grace you have been saved through faith, not that of yourselves, it is the gift of God. The question there is, okay, well, what is this gift of God? What does it refer to there? All of it. It refers to the grace. It refers to the faith. It refers to the salvation. All those things. So God has given us faith. To what end? For what purpose? In order that we might turn from carnal thinking, carnal aspirations, carnal desires, and grow in holiness instead, and grow in service unto the Lord instead. Richard Phillips notes this in his commentary. He says, quote, "...knowing God, growing in holiness, and serving the Lord..." and His Gospel are the Bible's priorities for the Christian's life. End quote. He then adds this, he adds this as a kicker. He says, quote, But what a far cry this view is from the motivation behind much popular Christianity and its presentation to the world. End quote. Think about that for a moment. Think about some of the ways that this kind of thinking creeps into our thinking. Think about the way that it has even crept into evangelism in the previous generation when people would say, uh, would commonly say ridiculously unbiblical things like, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Listen to me. Let's say, you know, you all know what happened on 9-11, right? The Twin Towers and all that, the terrorist attacks and all that. Let me, let me ask you this. If you could go back to 9.10 and preach the gospel to those people whose lives were lost, would you say to them, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life? Or would you say, you need to repent because your life is short? That's the gospel. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life is not the gospel. It's the furthest thing from it. Because the businessman who hears God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, he thinks to himself, well, my company is spiraling and it's going down deeper and deeper into debt. If I become a Christian, surely God will dig us out because he loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. A person with a debilitating disability thinks that they will have the ability to to walk again if they'll just believe in God. A discouraged athlete will think to himself, you know, if I add God to my life, then I'll be able to do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And all these ways of thinking are totally unbiblical. Do you see the crazy ways that man attempts to use and manipulate God? Or to harness God's power all in the name of godless, carnal desires being fulfilled? The fact is that this is not the way that God works. It's never been the way that God has worked. 
And what all these people will realize is that if God isn't going to help them achieve their carnal aspirations, they actually aren't interested in Him after all. Ralph Dale Davis notes the concern behind this way of thinking by saying this. He says, quote, uh, This way of thinking is not to seek God, but to control Him. Not to submit to God, but to use Him. End quote. And that is not why God exists. That is not the way that our relationship with Him is supposed to function, where we're calling the shots. And this is exactly what we see in the way that the elders of Israel are thinking. They actually aren't interested in God. They're interested in what carnal benefit He might give to them but they're not interested in God. They're only interested in God insofar as He's able to give them what they want, which is revenge, rather than giving Him what He wants, which is repentance and faith. The religion of the Israelites at this point is simply carnal and godless, just like every other man-made religion in the world. What's interesting is that when the Ark of the Covenant does come out, Eli's two sons, the two sons who neither know God nor fear God, are, are, are there with the ark. They're the ones helping to bring it out. The ark was supposed to be a symbol of God's presence. And so with that in mind, who was the one who thought it would be a good idea to bring out the two men who hated God and who despised His offerings and who were an offense to God as His personal attendants? The irony is that the presence of the Ark of the Covenant should have been, it should have been a reminder of the ways that Israel had transgressed God's commandments. Remember, the Ark of the Covenant contained the tablets of God's law. So it should have been something that served as a wake-up call for them, reminding them of their need to repent and to be cleansed of their sin. They should have cast themselves on God for mercy, knowing that justice would require that God pour out His eternal wrath on them. But that's not what happened. That's not what they do. And thus, it's not surprising that what has not started well is not going to end well either. Let's continue in verses 5-9. to As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, All Israel shouted with a great shout, so that the earth resounded. When the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. The Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So Israel thought they had this ace in the hole. They thought they had it all figured out. All they needed to do was bring out this box 
and the box was going to do all the work they needed to do. They were thinking that they had the greatest weapon known to man in their arsenal and that they had just pulled it out and they're ready to go. A weapon with such power that victory would be absolutely certain. And so they come out to the battlefield with a loud roar, a mighty shout, it says, which reveals actually that they're feeling pretty good. They're feeling confident. They're psyched up. They're confident but they've got false confidence. In fact, it was so loud that the the Philistines could hear them shouting from a distance. So great was their shout that the earth resounded. It was shaking the earth. So great was the shout from the Israelites that when the Philistines heard it and learned that the Israelites had brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out onto the battlefield, they were afraid, which I'm sure is exactly what Israel was hoping with this shout. I'm sure that they were hoping, oh, this is going to scare them, and they're just going to hightail it out of here. And that's kind of almost what happens. They are afraid, just like the Israelites, I think, would have hoped that they would be. Woe to us, they say. Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. That's what they're saying. They're, they're intimidated a little bit. Apparently, they, they actually had some kind of familiarity with the history of the Ark of the Covenant. They, they had some kind of familiarity with the story of God delivering His people from slavery to the Egyptians, although it's clear that they didn't get all the details correct. After all, the Ark of the Covenant actually wasn't there. When, they were, uh, when Moses was in the wilderness, that came after Sinai. Uh, that came at Sinai. So they didn't have all the details, right? They also said uh, the gods. Israel didn't have gods. They had one God, Yahweh. Uh, but instead of turning and, and running away, uh, the Philistines get themselves all psyched up instead of being psyched out. They're, not in, they're, they're intimidated, but not to a negative effect, rather to a positive effect in their minds. They're inspired and they're motivated instead of becoming cowards uh, they, they say, take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore, be men and fight. So they're intimidated, but sometimes intimidating your enemies can backfire. Sometimes it can dissolve your enemies' resolve, but sometimes it can strengthen your enemies' resolve. And so in this case, it strengthens the enemies' resolve. If they're going to die, if they're going to be defeated, they're going to die and they're going to be defeated in honor with their boots on, so to speak. See, the Philistines have both carnal aspirations and carnal power as well. So now it's just one group uh, that has carnal power and aspirations against another group that has carnal power and aspirations. In fact, that's all either group has. Israel does have God on their side, but they're attempting to use Him. They're attempting to manipulate Him and harness His power for their own personal gain. And so they have actually no reason to believe that He's going to do anything. They have no reason to think that they are doing something that has His blessing. This is basically a culture war. And it brings us face to face with a very important principle when we're talking about culture wars. One that we would be wise to, uh, to think deeply on as we too are surrounded by a hostile and carnal culture. The principle is this. Unless our power in this culture war is truly the power of God going forth, 
governed and informed by His Word, carried forth in the power of His Spirit, our efforts will prove futile and vain. Unless our power in this culture war is truly the power of God going forth, governed and informed by His Word, carried forth in the power of His Spirit, our efforts will be in vain. Israel would learn this lesson the hard way. And this principle would be reflected in Psalm 127 where the psalmist writes, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. There it is. That's the principle. The principle is that our efforts and our aspirations toward victory are absolutely vain. They are absolutely futile if God does not bless those efforts and aspirations. How would Israel have known what efforts God would bless and which He wouldn't? Well, they could have gone to Samuel, who speaks for God. And in our case, since God is no longer speaking through prophets as He once did, we must seek His will and His ways as revealed in His Word. His Word for us is the all-sufficient source of God's revealed will, of what He'll bless That's where we find it today. His Word doesn't tell us that we're going to defeat the culture. It doesn't. Instead, it tells us that in this world we will face troubles, but that God has overcome the world and is sovereign over it, and thus He is able to orchestrate things in according with His sovereign plans and purposes. And that includes sustaining the church through the centuries. That much we can be sure of. He will build His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. As I've said many times before though, God doesn't promise that the Christian life will be a flight without turbulence. But He does promise that we will have a safe landing at our final destination. We remember the words of Hannah back in her song in the beginning of the second chapter. She said this, Not by might shall a man prevail. Oh man, Israel, if only they would have known that. If only they would have believed that. If only they would have acted on that. This would not only be an important and difficult lesson for the Israelites to learn, it would also be a very costly lesson. Look at verses 10 and 11 with me. Then the Lord came and stood and called as at other times. Oh, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's chapter 3. Chapter, 10 verses, or chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. And the slaughter was very great, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So Israel doesn't even see this coming. They get absolutely obliterated. They get decimated on the battlefield. If you thought that the death of 4,000 soldiers on the battlefield was severe, this second battle is far, far worse, with 30,000 casualties in Israel's camp. But the irony here is that in Israel's defeat, God actually did remain faithful to what He promised. He did accomplish his purpose, the purpose that he had vowed to Eli, that his sons would be killed on the same day. And so this is what brought an end to the priesthood in Eli's household. 
By the way, isn't it crazy to think that even after God had sent the man of God in chapter 2 to warn Eli that he was going to kill his sons and that his sons were an offense to him, and then gave the same message through Samuel in chapter 3, isn't it crazy to think that he still didn't do anything to remove his sons from the priesthood in the tabernacle at Shiloh after those two warnings? It tells us something about Eli. He's a stubborn man, I imagine. Part of Psalm 78 would be written to lament what would happen in the aftermath of this battle as the Philistines were now able to come in and destroy Israel's religious capital city of Shiloh. Verses 60 to 62 of Psalm 78 lament this loss. The psalmist writes, He abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Yikes. How did it come to that? Well, back in verses 56 to 58 of Psalm 78, we read this. Yet they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow, for they provoked Him with their high places and aroused His jealousy with their graven images. There you go. That's how this all happened. The point here is that true religion, true religion, is not an attempt to manipulate God, to coerce God, to harness God's power for the sake of carrying out our carnal ambitions. You want victory in a battle? You want victory in a a culture war? It needs to start by understanding that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. See, your, your fellow man is not the enemy. Those who would persecute you, they're not the enemy. The governors, the kings... The presidents who would instruct you to disobey God, even they aren't the enemy. This is a spiritual war, not a carnal war that we're engaged in. Satan and his fallen angels, they're the enemy. They're the enemy. Satan is the one who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. From 2 Corinthians 4.4. And so for that reason... The only weapon we need to understand that God has equipped His church with is a spiritual weapon. That being the Word of God, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. And our shield is faith. That's what we do war with. Faith and His Word. That's it. True religion is what comes to God Not demanding that He do things our way. Not demanding that He yield His will to ours. But it's that which comes to God and says, God, you're God, I'm not, so not my will, but yours be done on earth as it is in heaven. It believes God's Word. It stands on God's Word. 
And so when God's Word instructs us that uh, something like no one comes to the Father but through Jesus, we understand that following God and having God with us and for us starts with humbling ourselves before Him, confessing our sins, and trusting entirely in Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. See, if you want God on your side, like the Israelites, they they want God on their side, but they don't really want God on their side. They just want what He has to give. But if you want God on your side, you first must be reconciled to God. And the only way to be reconciled to God is through the means that He has provided by sending His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man. Only God in flesh, only God could provide what He requires. There is no other way to be reconciled to Him because there is no other way to stand in the perfect righteousness that He requires for your your salvation. You either stand in Jesus' perfect righteousness, which is credited, imputed to all who believe, apart from any works or deeds that they might do, or you stand in no righteousness at all. Those are the only two options. You either stand in His righteousness or you have no righteousness because our our greatest deeds, our best deeds, in His eyes are filthy rags. Friends, God doesn't exist to fulfill our carnal ambitions and our godless aspirations. Rather, our aspirations, our ambitions must be shaped and molded by God's will, which is revealed in His Word alone. Israel's elders trusted in it, the Ark of the Covenant, rather than trusting in God. So I have to ask you, Are you trusting in an it? Is there something that you're trusting in apart from God? Maybe some gift that He's given you, but not actually God Himself? Maybe something that you've done? Maybe a negotiation that you think that you've made with God as if, you know, God, if if you do this and this for me, I'll do this and that for you? Friends, let me urge you today to forsake and to repent of your carnal desires and aspirations. Lay down and leave behind even your best deeds because they are absolutely worthless. And instead, turn to Christ in whom all hope, all comfort, and all true victory is found with a faith that joyfully yields to His will. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word. And again we pray, Lord, that You would illuminate our minds as we meditate on this text. That You would give us understanding. And not only understanding, but a desire to yield our will to Yours. Oh Father, we can only confess to You that it's so easy for us to have carnal ambitions and carnal aspirations. Uh, Things that you do not promise or things that we sometimes long for, we, we must confess. But oh God, please grant us the grace to repent. Knowing that nothing in this world is satisfying. It may give pleasure for a a brief moment, but nothing but you 
truly satisfies in this world. Help us not only to know that intellectually, help us to believe that. And if we must experience pain or loss in order to gain that understanding, oh Lord, give us your grace to lead us through the valley. Humble us before yourself that you may find our our hearts pleasing to you and not filled with pride and carnal aspirations. Oh God, we pray that you would give us opportunities to share the good news of the gospel knowing that the real battle that we're engaged in is a spiritual battle. And the enemy has taken our friends and our neighbors and even our family members captive and has blinded them from seeing the glory of the gospel in Christ Jesus. Teach us, O Lord, to to use properly your word, our sword, and to have a shield that deflects the enemy's darts, that being faith. O Lord, we pray these things, that we would be a people who desire what you desire, who love what you love, who hate what you hate. We ask these things that Christ would be glorified in our lives and that we would be more and more conformed to his image. It's in his name we pray. Amen.